a few years ago with my daughter Heather's three children, I would start telling the story of Charlie the house mouse. And the, the style that I use is I tell this story and he's in the tree and something's happening and a hawk is looking for a, a food and he hawk is coming down, but actually Charlie can speak hawk language. So he challenges this guy and the hawk doesn't know what to do or so. But all of a sudden, there'll be some crisis, and I use to be continued, and then we'll do it the next day. Pat Johnson likes stories of suspense. On this Get to Know an Average Joe, we look back on 85 years of life so far with Pat and his wife, Jean, whom I met through my friend and their daughter, Heather. On Pat's 85th, his entire family met at a Chicago restaurant to celebrate. The suspense was there, even if it wasn't a complete surprise, as planned by Heather. We, I knew something was going on because Heather and Jean and people had been talking about who was coming and who, and it was a joint thing because Jean's brother, Tim, and Kathy, his wife, were having their 50th anniversary the next day. So my birthday was we were going there actually for her for his 50th wedding anniversary but my birthday happened so we had this big party and i sort of knew that there were going to be people there but i didn't realize my brother from st louis would show up and his wife and some friends from washington showed up so it was a it was a big surprise that way but this is not the only 50th wedding yeah, anniversary that was what i was going to say and then jim jean's uh, older brother Mike announced that there were actually five or six 50th wedding anniversaries coming up within the year. Her sister Nancy had hers. Her sister Jerry had her 50th anniversary. Uh, Tim and Kathy had theirs. Jean and I will have ours in December and Kevin and his wife will have theirs next year sometime, so there'll be a bunch of 50th wedding anniversaries. So incredible. So this family has the secret to longevity in marriage, so it's time to give it up. What is the secret? <laughs> the secret is hold your breath. <laughs> Just roll with the punches here. So, No, I think that it, it was probably the, the families, both families were very well developed familial interconnections. So we both came from big family. Jean was in her own family, 10 children. My family was an extended family of several aunts and, and their children in the, that, that lived right in the same neighborhood almost. And so we all stayed together and we saw families that stayed together and that sort of was the model that we lived with and that's what happened so sounds a bit to takes a village kind of thing well it was not only takes a village but I think again it was looking at aunts uncles brothers sisters and seeing the connections that we have and looking at both families I had four four three brothers and myself four and Jean, her 10, and every one of the people are 
excellent citizens, excellent mm -hmm. people. They take care of themselves. They take care of their relatives. They take care of everybody. So that was sort of the common denominator of the mm -hmm. two families that probably added up to this. And while we're talking about time, your birthday, these anniversaries, we're in your home in Washington, D.C., and there are clocks. There are a lot of clocks, and the clocks chime, and it's musical kind of atmosphere, but it makes me wonder, is time something that is incredibly important to you? Well, I like to know what time it is, <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing. Actually, one of the clocks is a cuckoo clock that came from a, a, a German student that we had lived with her. Her grandparents sent the clock as a sort of a gift, so that's more, it, it chimes and it makes noise, but it is more of a remembrance of Anka, our friend. The ship's bell clock is one that my aunt gave me when I was in the Navy as a reminder of my shipboard experiences and so forth. So that does ship's bells clocks, which ring, and hopefully they both ring within a few seconds of each other, but occasionally they don't. So When we first talked about doing a podcast interview, you said, sure, I'll tell you some old sea stories. So let's have a sea story. What was that like being in the Navy, and what years were those? Well, I was in the Navy from 1954, uh, to or essentially 1965. I had become a naval officer through the Naval ROTC program. I went to the University of Mississippi as undergraduate student. And as a first assignment was sent to a minesweeping unit in uh, Yorktown, Virginia. It was a training school for minesweeping uh, students, students of minesweepers, and uh, and then was transferred to Japan, where we were had a minesweeping division, a small minesweeping boats, and those boats were run by mainly chief petty officers, many, uh, several, of which were veterans of the war. One actually swam out of the Arizona when it was sunk. Mm -hmm. Another was, had three aircraft carriers shot out from under him. So these guys were real Navy pros. They really knew it. So that was a very I interesting sort of experience. I then was also assigned to a ship in San Diego that did cross the Pacific several times. And one of the experiences there was being stationed ship in Hong Kong. and. I got selected to be the senior shore patrol officer for the Hong Kong period. So I got to know a whole lot of people in Hong Kong, local people all over. Some years later, after I had left the Navy and Jean and I were married, what was about 1973, we got a trip to uh, Europe to to Asia and went to Hong Kong, Bangkok, and 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 Tokyo. And it, when we were in Hong Kong, we went to w one of the restaurants that I used to go to. And one of someone, one of the Chinese P 
people came up to me and said, oh, Lieutenant Johnson. And I looked up and he said, you don't remember me, but I was the busboy in this restaurant when you were, uh, when you were stationed here. And I said, oh, yeah, that's right, I guess so. Mm. <laughs> of course, I couldn't recognize him. He says, well, now I own three restaurants. So it was an amazing story. I can imagine that Hong Kong from the 1960s to 1973 made leaps in several other ways. What observations did you make about Hong Kong and its just appearance and its pace and its the feel of that city? Yeah. Well, it was when I was there in the early part in the 60s, Hong Kong was a almost the same it ha as it had been for probably a century or so. Ships anchored in the harbor, the harbor area there. No, uh, the only way to get across from one part to the other was by either ferry or Walla Walla, the little boats that would take you around. When we got there in 73 or so, then that was, we, it was hard to find the shoreline that we knew, that I knew, uh, in the early days because it had built, been built out and there were bridges being constructed. And I, I haven't been there since then, but I think now it would be unrecognizable to me to see what it was. Can we backtrack a little bit to the veterans that you served with when you were on the ship? And what did you learn from them and what did they share of their experience from the war? Well, the the people that I knew when I was in Japan in those early days, we were still an occupying force there. So uh, many of the, the old veterans there would tell me, you know, how it was to fight in, at sea in those days. And, and it was not, not easy and not, uh, a pleasant experience to, to, to behold, but they were, they came out with very, very stable, very solid citizens, and were great leaders for the younger sailors that they were under their tutelage, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, later, in the early 60s, or yeah, early 60s, I went to Vietnam. I, I was sent as a uh, an advisor with a military assistance advisory group. There were about 400 Americans in Vietnam at that time, and I met a fellow who was a uh, officer, had been an enlisted man, become an officer in the, in the Navy, and he became a real close friend, and we stayed very close friends for until he died uh, a few years ago. And he was also a very, he had been in combat in Europe and had seen a lot of real naval action. And he was a real uh, inspiration to me about how a human being could be both a naval officer and a, and a great, you know, and a real human person too. He was as solid a citizen as probably I've ever known. Can you give me a for instance about how he showed that to you? 
Well, I think one time I remember him uh, when we were in Vietnam and he had some sailors and he was explaining to them what he wanted to be done and he asked each one, do you understand what I'm saying? And each one said, yes, sir. And he said, good, because now that you understand, I expect that's what you do. So he was that kind of a person that would have a leadership capability that let the people really understand what he wanted to be done and then ask them, do you really understand? And if they, if they would say no or what do you really mean or so forth, he would do it. So what that showed me is that in many cases, many senior people will assume if they say something, everybody understands what they want to do. So he was quite comprehensive in that. And that was because he had been an enlisted man himself and he'd been in real situations with colleagues that had to work together, so. What was his name? Ray Neiman. Mm. And Ray was quite a man. Mm. Mm. So the Navy was a big part of sort of my understanding of life, I guess. Sure. And I guess shaping your personality and your values. Well, a little bit, I guess. Right, right. So I think the values got shaped probably by the sisters at Annunciation Academy, a, <laughs> a Catholic school way back there. So right. They were pretty, pretty substantial in trying to make sure that people, that the children that were under their tutelage were going to come out pretty good. And as far as I know, almost every person that was in that school with me have turned out to be wonderful people. So. I guess they could set the boundaries pretty clearly. What about once you once you left the Navy, then it, did you go into the diplomatic service immediately? No, no. What no. I I left the Navy in 1965, and I decided that actually there weren't a lot of jobs for naval well naval officers, right. <laughs> and uh, so a friend of mine had told me that Stanford University had this interesting program in engineering economic planning. And so I went to Stanford and applied and luckily got accepted and did a PhD at Stanford with some of the best people in the world, uh, Nobel laureates and elegant, wonderful engineering and science people and so forth. And during that period, I was uh, a good friend with a Jesuit priest. Uh, and he and I used to try to, we, well, we had a sort of a, a bet on who was going to get their dissertation done at the first. first. And the, it was a case of beer was going to be the, the prize. prize. Mm -hmm. So one day, I was walking down the street, and I said, oh, there's Juanita from Colombia. And my Jesuit friend said, no, no, that's Jean Lennon from Chicago. So 
I said, Gene Lennon from Chicago, yeah. So I got introduced to Gene Lennon from Chicago because my, my friend that I had met had told me she was from Columbia. Well, she was from Peace Corps in Columbia, but not from Columbia. <laughs> so. And fate brought you together then. Fate brought us together. You literally walked up to each other on the sidewalk. That was how you met. No, actually we met at, uh, after um, mass at the Newman Center in, at Stanford, this friend who kept telling me she was from Columbia kept telling me she wanted to introduce me, but Sunday after Sunday, neither she or I were there or something, and finally one day she introduced me. So I said, oh, so this is the Juanita, yes. So I asked Juanita if she'd like to go and have a cup of coffee or drink, and so we went out and we had coffee, and I said, uh, ah, so you're from Colombia, and she says, well, I was in Colombia as a Peace Corps volunteer and so forth, and so I had a German roommate, Jürgen Seidel, and Jürgen, I, I, I subscribed to Commonweal magazine. I had a subscription to Commonweal, a sort of left-leaning Catholic magazine. And one day, Jurgen was looking at the magazine, and he said, "Ach, it's Jeannie." And I looked, and here was her picture. And it was an ad for the university that she had gone to, Clark College, and it said, "Jean Lennon, excellence." And I said, "Yeah, I go along with that. That looks pretty good." So. Sure enough, I go and ask her, is this your picture? She said, yeah, it's my picture. So I actually can show you. Hey, he's reaching into his wallet. There's going to be, do you carry this advertisement with you? Yep. Oh, my goodness. And there it is. Wow, that is a picture of young Jean. Does the name Juanita remain between the two of you? Uh. Is it a term no, of affection, no, anything? No. no. You got that straightened out pretty early. Well, she gets Juanita when she goes to El Salvador and other places, <laughs> which is the best translation, I guess, of Jean. So, right. so fast forward then, almost 50 years together and three children together and now grandchildren together. If we just fast forward to you create stories for your grandchildren about is it Charlie the house mouse? Yeah, well, that started in Paris with the two children who were the youngest, too. And every night we would have a story that had to have Charlie get into trouble and we would end with to be continued. So a few years ago with my daughter Heather's two children, three children, I would start telling this story of Charlie the house mouse and how he did it. Well, the the style that I use is I tell this story and he's in a tree and something's happening and a, a hawk is looking for a, a food and he hawk is coming down, but actually Charlie can speak hawk language, so he challenges this guy and the hawk doesn't know what to do. so. But all of a sudden, there'll be some crisis, and I use to be continued, and then we'll do it the next day. So, But each grandchild is getting a separate 
Charlie the House Mouse story, is that right? Yeah, I have to have to condition it to where they live and who who they have and so forth. So now my daughter has a place, a home in, my youngest daughter has a home in Omaha, and she has a family living with her who have two children, three and five. So I've started Charlie the House Mouse with them. <clears throat> but this time it's going to have to be by correspondence, I think. So mm. we're trying to do that, and we'll see what happens. Did you grow up with somebody doing that for you, or how did that happen that you started telling this story across across the different children in the different cities? Uh, no, it didn't happen to me, but I mainly it was when we lived in Paris, we had to get them to go to bed, and this was <laughs> the only way to do it is to tell a nice story, and they would then I said, okay, to be continued, and they would take off to bed. So, What ingredients make a day that you think is like a red-letter day? Like, these are the things. Well, there's like a couple of thousand of those, so I could tell you a lot. But I probably one of them is uh, to have a, a really beautiful day in Paris. Uh, we lived there long enough to know the city pretty well, and I really like it and like the, the area. And to just walk the streets of Paris is just every turn is a new vista that is magnificent, either architecturally or a, par a park setting, whatever. So uh, a good day would be to take off on a nice long walk through a part of Paris that I have not seen yet or and to find a small little restaurant that looks like it's interesting and go in and see if I can start a talk with the owner or the manager or something like that. So, so that's one sort of thing. I guess another would be probably doing some writing on some areas that I'm sort of interested in professionally and being able to relax and just let my little brain try to figure out how to say the right thing at the right time here. Mm -hmm. And of course another good day is spending a day with my wife trying to make a good dinner for friends and relatives and others. So mm -hmm. we have a lot of fun doing that. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a nice variety of different possibilities. I hope you get lots and lots of those kinds of days. Yeah. Well, like I say, the next closer to 90 than 80. I've got to get busy to keep keep going here. So. As long as you're talking about being 90, what do you think was your generation's greatest challenge compared to the current generation's greatest challenge? And by current generation, I mean your grandkids. Yeah, they, our challenge was more or less to get the skills to be able to make your way and I think their challenge is going to be how to how to live with the abundance that actually the society now has that we don't know how to distribute in any which any way and so that's that's the big one and I'm real optimistic that looking at both my younger daughter and many of the children that I see, their ideas are in the right direction. So they're, it's going to work, I think. Mm -hmm.
Pat Johnson. On the next edition of Get to Know an Average Joe, we meet Jean, Juanita of Pat's Stories. When we came to uh, Washington, we uh, both got a job at the National Science Foundation, me first and then Pat, and then um, just settling in, trying to be one of the few women program managers at the National Science Foundation, work, work, work. Um, well, finally, uh, we allowed ourselves another baby uh, nine years later. It was Patrick, and then uh, there was a little space in my heart for a third, and Margaret came uh, five years later. I'm Dodie Axe. Rate this podcast and tell me what you think. Thanks for listening. And now, if you'll excuse me, <laughs>